0: To here today, and uh, I would like to say to you that you're going to get a nice Father's Day sermon, but if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you realize we do not kind of uh, function based on the, the calendar of, of men, <laughs> and uh, we, we typically do not stop the, 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 the progress through the scripture that we've been trying to make uh, to coincide with a given A day of celebration, but having said that, we do want to acknowledge our dads and and commend the dads who are trying to honor God, who are here this morning, who are wanting to be impactful in their family. Uh, You have no idea uh, the influence and the reach of your influence in the lives of your kids. And not only your kids, but other people's kids. So uh, I just say to you dads, well done and continue to honor God in your life. Amen? Amen. Hey, listen, we're in Exodus, as you guys can see up there, uh, Exodus Sermon Series. We're in Exodus chapter 12, right? And uh, so uh, last week, you know, we had, we, we've already worked through all the plagues and. Basically, we got to the 10th plague last week. But prior to the 10th plague coming, there were a couple of things that kind of the the Scriptures taught us. There were a few things that uh, the the Lord elaborated on. And one was, and you guys will remember this, one was uh, the 10th plague being uh, the plague of the firstborn. Remember that? And so with the plague of the firstborn, what God wanted to incorporate was uh, what we know today to be Passover, right? And with it being Passover, what God required of the men of of Israel were to go out and they were to uh, basically get a lamb and and they were to sacrifice the lamb. They were to take the blood of the lamb and cover the doorpost of each home. And this was the responsibility of the father. Remember, we touched on that. And so let me say that uh, right now on Father's Day uh, just alluding back to that scripture that it was incumbent and in the responsibility of the father to oversee the house had been covered by the blood amen We kind of we, we understand that right And then there was also the institution of uh, uh, the festival of unleavened bread right the Feast of unleavened bread. And, and we elaborated on that and so forth and whatnot. And it was a sign of the, the urgency in which God was going to rescue His people. I mean, it was going to happen like that and there was no time uh, to add the leaven or the yeast and there was no time to wait for the leaven or the yeast to respond in the bread, right? And, and, and so and it, was a, it was a symbolic thing uh, of, of the urgency in the, the exodus at this moment. Well, God does all of these things Prior to the 10th plague. And uh, when the 10th plague comes, it is devastating. Absolutely devastating. And uh, what I want to talk to you guys about today is, is the scripture we find right here in, in Exodus. We're going to look at uh, chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 29. We're going to reread a couple of verses that we read last week. In closing, because we really didn't cover that, and there's a couple of things I would like to point out to you, okay? Because what we're talking about today is the beginning of the journey, the Exodus. All right, so let's look at this scripture in chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. Let's read that, we'll pray, and then we'll begin to work our way through this scripture, okay? And this is what it says. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dunnage and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Father, in Jesus' name, what we want to do, Lord, is to open your word And we want to glean from it. We want it to shape us. We want to leave here altered. In an altered state under the influence of your spirit and your word. And so Lord, right now at this moment, we open ourselves up to receive the truth of your scripture. Lord, the life-giving truth. And I pray, Father, for every father, every mother, every son, every daughter, every person in this sanctuary, every person who is downstairs ministering to our children. I pray, Father, this morning that your spirit and your word up here and down there will minister to them. And so, Father, we're going to give you the glory for everything that's about to take place, for the lives and the hearts that are about to be changed by your word and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, the journey begins, right? We've been working on the plagues of of Egypt now for several, several weeks, right? And we finally made it through, and right here we find ourselves, and this is the response of Pharaoh and the officials to the last plague, that being the plague of the firstborn. And there's something I need you to look at, because this is one of those things that kind of jumps out at me when I read this scripture, that we oftentimes just kind of breeze through, and we don't really give a whole lot of thought to it. And that is this notion of sleeping on God, right? Because this is what was going down in Egypt. There had been nine previous plagues. Every one, God had kept his word in bringing about the very thing that God had declared outside of plague three, plague six, and plague, plague nine, which he did not declare, but spoke only to Moses every plague that he did declare, every word that he said came to pass. So here is the, the, the dilemma that I find myself in in reading this scripture as a father today, and you should find a, a, a relative vexing in your own heart to try to understand what we're actually reading right here. What we're reading is that men had been warned by a God who has proven himself faithful that their firstborn child was going to perish because he, being Pharaoh, would not surrender, submit, and release the Israelites. How in the world do you sleep understanding that this is what's about to take place? Now, as a father, if you know that there's an agent of death invading your home that's going to take your firstborn child. How do you lay your head on a pillow and nap? How do you go to bed at night thinking it's any other night and you'll wake up the next morning like any other morning knowing what God has said? Yet that is exactly what is taking place. Pharaoh and the officials of Egypt the scripture says right here when we look at they get up during the night, implying what? That they were in bed during the night. You can't arise from some place where you wasn't already. So they arise, they 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 get up out of their sleep and they find out what is taking place. How do they find out? The weeping and wailing, and I mentioned this. You can only imagine through that night when the first scream is generated in the deep corridors in the the most recessed neighborhoods of Egypt. The first scream from that first mother or that first father recognizing their child was dead as it crescendos into a symphony of wailing. And it reaches the palace. And Pharaoh awakens. And the officials awaken because they had slept on God. Let me say this to you because I don't want to put you in the place of Pharaoh and say, okay, hey, this is who you are. This is who God is in reflections to this. Listen, sleeping on God, there's different ways we sleep on God. Let me just say that. There are times when the warnings and the determent of God is slept on when God says, Lisa, don't do that. Don't do that to sweet Aaron, right? Right? There, there are times when, when, when God will say, don't do this or don't do that because there's this repercussion or there, that ramification, all right? There's those warnings. And then there's times in our lives because those things, those warnings that God gives us, oftentimes we adhere to those types of things because we understand what's, uh, what, what's in the balance, the price. And so we adhere to But a lot of times we sleep on God till when God is saying for us to do something to be something, to go somewhere, to count, to matter. And we sleep on God and it's a spirit of omission to where we just turn a deaf ear to God and somehow understanding that God has told us or directed us, we still just turn a deaf ear to it and we find ourselves somehow sleeping. Not understanding on either side of this equation what we will suffer or what we will lose by sleeping on God. Life, when we sleep on God, life can be be turned upside down in a matter of minutes. I cannot tell you how many phone calls I've gotten from people. And they said, we're at the hospital. I remember getting the phone call about Ashlyn and Angela. Being in a car wreck a couple years ago that left one individual dead. Correct, Angela? I remember getting that phone call. And man, my my evening was going fine. Everything was, was smooth. And all of a sudden, in a matter of seconds, if not minutes, the world changes and it's turned upside down. And I'm telling you, that's how quick life can change for you and for me. And because of that reality, that things can shift at such, an incredible, at, at such an incredible rate, you and I can never, never sleep on God. As a matter of fact, what the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, therefore let us not sleep as others do. Listen, I don't care if others are sleeping, if that's what they choose to do. I can't stay awake for them. But he is saying to you, and to me, followers of Christ, don't do as others do. Don't sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, sober-minded, clarity. Listen, I worked with a dude down in Glasgow, and I hope he's not listening to this podcast. But his name is Carl Hunter. That's a good dude. It's a good, he's about 6'4", big old muscular guy. And uh, Carl was a great guy. He worked third shift. But Carl had an issue. He had a, a legitimate medical issue Carl suffered from narcolepsy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Narcolepsy, third shift. It don't jive, right? And I remember I'd come in on day shift and Carl would be staying over to work four hours. He's working a 12-hour shift. Carl done struggled all night. I mean, he's up there working with one eye open. You know what I'm talking about? And now, now Carl's asked to work 12 hours and he's taking medication. I'm not making fun of of, of the disorder. It's legitimate. This is a legitimate disorder. And I remember working with Carl. And I'd talk to Carl, we'd be down on this, this machine. There were times I was Carl's supervisor. And I'd, I'd, I'd come down there and, and there was this, this, uh, uh, this device called a cure oven. Is Jeff Jeff in here? You know what I'm talking about, Jeff? And uh, I'd walk down there and Carl would be on that cure oven. And what you'd do is you'd take a, a brake pad and a, and a steel plate and you would load it, just like this. And I'd go down there and I'd say, good morning, Carl, how you doing? Carl would be, <laughs> Hey, Adrian. I mean, I was, I mean, I mean, struggling to stay. And there were, there were times that Carl, would, I'd watch him load that oven. He's a great dude. He'd be loading that oven, and I'm watching him. He's going. And he would freeze. And I'm standing beside Carl. And I'm just watching Carl. I know what's going on. And all of a sudden, it would start right back up. it would start right back up. He had no idea what had taken place, who had watched him, what was going on. For those 10 or 15 seconds that he was asleep, in his mind, in his life, those few seconds had been lost. And I'm telling you, what God is saying to you and to me is we sometimes suffer from a spiritual narcolepsy. You know what I'm talking about? Where, man, we just, we just flat go to sleep on God. What we don't understand is what is being lost in the season of sleep. Fathers who sleep on their children, what do you think? You're not getting this time back. Mothers who are sleeping on their family, you're not getting this time back. And here was Pharaoh, and here was his officials God had given a direction or a directive. He had given them a declaration. This is what's going to happen. And instead of adhering to that, measuring the loss that would be coming, they sleep on it. What are you sleeping on? Are the things you're sleeping on this morning? Are you passing the buck, sleeping on responsibilities? Your relationship with God? Come on. Is your relationship with God as intense as it once was? Or have you found yourself in a state of narcolepsy? You're on the job. I'm a dad, I'm a mom, but I'm not really engaged. I just found myself asleep. Hmm. It says, Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud welling in Egypt and there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. Check this out. And this is what he says to these guys. Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds. Remember, the flocks and the herds were the last thing that he was willing to relinquish. He said, take your, you know what, get those cats out of here. Get your animals out of here. That's what he's saying, basically. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go. And then he ends it with this. And also bless me. I like the fact that when they awake, he summons. Because the reality. The reality of the involvement of God in this situation had become so overwhelming that he couldn't wait for the sun to rise. He called immediately for Moses and for Aaron. He summoned them immediately. And then he says to them, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Now, this is kind of funny because at this moment, he's not necessarily giving them permission to leave. It's something completely different than that. What's taking place right here is there's this imperative that's taking place right here. He's literally driving them out. He's not only saying, here, uh, let's open the gate. Man, he's opening the gate and pushing these jokers out. Get out. Leave. That's what he's doing. That's, really, that's what's really taking place Right here. As a matter of fact, if you go to Exodus chapter eleven, verse one, that's what God says would happen. He literally says He will drive you out completely. Once again, God's word is true, and that's what's taking place right here. And then, and then it says this. And I I just want you, I want you to, to to realize what is happening here. He says to him, as he calls him in. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind how this awkward interaction is taking place. Okay? Now, if you remember, if you go back in the scripture, when he threatens to kill Moses, remember this? He threatens to kill Moses at the plague of darkness. And he says to Moses, I'll not see your face again. And you know what Moses says to him? You are right. You will not see my face again. That's what he says. I will not appear before you again. That's what the scripture says. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 29, this is what Moses says. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now, when you read that and you understand that he's called him forth, you're like, well, that don't, that don't really seem to jive, man. It seems like there's a, an inconsistency, a contradiction here. But when you look at the Hebrew word for appear, which is ponim, it means face to face. And when Moses says in other translations, I will never see your face again, you have to look at that under that context and understand how this meeting is unfolding. Can you see? I can visualize this. As they come into the courts of Pharaoh, into the room of Pharaoh, Pharaoh with his back to Moses, or maybe it's just completely dark. But I guarantee you, based on what the scripture teaches, they're not looking one another in the face. And I can see Pharaoh with his back turned to Moses, saying, leave all of you. This is an awkward, awkward moment. And he says to him, go and worship your Lord. Take all that stuff. But then he says this, and this is one of those things that you and I sometimes are guilty of. He says, and also bless me. He understands that God is greater than himself. He understands to be blessed is going to require a request of Moses as God. And he says to him, and I can almost read this, I can almost hear this, almost sense the attitude in this this, uh, request when he says, and also bless me, because you you know, I I am letting you go after all. I am letting you go after all. And that's kind of where we get sometimes, you know what I'm talking about? where circumstances and situations dictate a certain response, where God has moved or acted and our hands are tied and the, fo- and the purpose of God is coming to fruition and it literally just steamrolls us and then at the end of it, we're like, with our hands tied, yeah, I'm for that because our hands were tied. We had resisted up to that point. And now when God's, when God's purpose uh, prevails, and our hands are tied. We jump on the bandwagon. You know what I'm talking about? And you can, you can see Pharaoh said, hey, hey, hey. And, and get your God to bless me because I am letting you go. And I am letting you have all the things that you requested. Kind of taking credit maybe. Even though his hands were tied in this situation. He had really no choice in the matter. They were leaving. And God had declared it to him. It was going to happen. And that's what he says. And also, bless me. And then it goes on, and this is what it says. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Otherwise, they said, we will all die. Listen, you've got to understand what these cats were watching. Man, they had witnessed every plague that had come into Egypt. That God had brought. They had witnessed every bit of it. Now every home in Egypt is preparing for a funeral. And their request at this moment is for everyone to leave. Even the people. They said, if you don't, if you don't, then surely we will die as well. So this is what the scripture says. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added. And I will go ahead and say this to you. The yeast hadn't been added. Why? Because the yeast had been removed from the house. Remember that? All right, carry on. And carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Now, if you're reading the scripture, if you jump back a little bit, when the last time this is documented... It never mentions clothing. Do y'all remember reading that? But he asked for articles of gold and silver. But in that, in, in, in that portion of Scripture, it doesn't speak of clothing. But there's something else that's kind of hidden in the Scripture that you may not understand. And it's found in chapter 3, verse, verse, 11, or verse 22, I believe it is. And I I want to kind of give you an overview of what's happening here as this is taking place. When the request was being made, you know who was making the request? The women. Did you know that? Did you know the responsibility of making this request had been laid on the women of the home? You remember, as we read last week in verse 12, or in chapter 12, it was the responsibility of the father to slay the lamb, to cover the doorpost. That was his responsibility. Now there's another responsibility for provision and protection and care in the family. And this responsibility rests upon the women. You're like, well, Trent, where do you get that at? That's not what this scripture says. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 22, this is what God says to Moses every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Moses didn't forget. And for clothing, which you will put on your sons and your daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians, or as the scripture would say in other translations, you will strip them of their wealth. And you say, okay, Trent, what's the application here with the moms doing this? This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption that God does for the children of Israel that starts in the home. There's a responsibility for the husband to see to it that the doorposts are covered. There's a responsibility for the wife to see to it that they follow through and honor what God has said. This is a joint Effort between a man and his wife to honor God within the confines of the home. It isn't one that is greater than the other or one is less than the other. As a matter of fact, when you go to Ephesians chapter five, it starts out, when it, when it talks about the order of the family and the home, it starts out with these words. What? Submit one to another in honor or reverence to Christ. And you say, okay, Trent, Okay, if the husband's submitting and the wife's submitting, then who's in control? Well, take a guess who's in control when the husband is submitting and the wife is submitting and both are carrying out the the spiritual responsibilities that God has given them. Jesus is leading. That is the construct. That is the design that God initiated and purposed within the life of the church. And so the women do. But there's something even more beautiful about it. When these cats are leaving, the articles of clothing, the gold and the silver, is, pl- and the clo- is placed on the children. Can you see the mom and the dad? For 430 years, our people have been in this nation and slaves for the majority of that. But to be able to look at their children and to say to them, but you will leave this place under the care of God, attired like prince and princesses. And it isn't mom and dad who brought this about. It's God who brought this about. We're just honoring him. You know how I know that? Because this is what the very next verse says. When it says, and Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for, or instructed them to ask the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. It is the beauty of God. The, it's not even the unseen hand of God anymore. It's not the stealth hand. Of, God was overtly acting out in their sight. He was saying, look at me, look at you, and love you. Every plague that bore a level of discipline into the land of Egypt, it was God declaring to his children, look at me, see you, and care for you. That's a powerful thought. Some of us from time to time we need God to act because we become so desperate and so thin in our spirits sometimes we just cry out don't we Sandra? We just cry out and say God I need you to I need to see you seeing me and acting on my behalf and what he does. It's a powerful, powerful Reality. Life altering and change. So they plundered the Egyptians. That's what the scripture says. I love when it said the Lord had made the Egyptians favorable. (laughs) Please don't lose sight of his great influence, Jay. Don't lose sight of who it is. It's not your great personality, right? It's not the strategies that are born out of our cleverness that work out this favor. It's not our intellect and the way we construct and work things in our circle of influence that predisposes people to be favorably turned towards us. It wasn't any of those things. It was God. So they should have come out of Egypt, not patting themselves on the back, but literally looking at us. Our God, Right? Let's, let's read on. I'm just going to read through this, okay? Let me read through these few verses, and then we're going to close, okay? The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. Y'all get that? Sit on that one. We're coming back. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. 600,000, you know, if you got your standard nuclear family, two kids, wife, husband, you're talking 2.4 million, right? But if you extrapolate the number using the Trent Evans family model, that being 13 children, which I'm not saying they had 13 kids, but we had 13 in my family. If you were to extrapolate that number over 600,000 men, we're talking about 8.5 million. And I'm not saying they all had 13. And I wouldn't go so far to even, even say that's a reality. But the one thing that I do know, if you go back into Exodus, into chapter one, one of the great fears of Pharaoh was the rate in which they were multiplying. Catholic rabbit type multiplying. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, kids were springing up, man. So if you think and you want to embrace, you want to embrace this notion that they look like a nuclear family like you and I would see, I would would go so far and and say, you're probably incorrect. When you consider what the scripture says about what children are, you know what children are? A blessing. That's what the scripture says. And you think God wouldn't want to put a blessing on his children in Egypt? You think two is enough? You think God said, oh, I've blessed them enough. I would suggest that it was probably much greater than that. And the number's probably far exceeded 2.4 two million. I do believe that. You say, well, I'll st- I've studied some uh, commentaries, Trent. I've been reading up on, uh, 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 you know, Matthew Henry. He said 2.4 million. I don't care. You got birth certificates on all these kids? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I bet the number was greater. And we'll move on, okay? Let's move on. And also large droves of livestock. Oh, let me me say this. Besides the women and children, many other people went up with them. Now, that's important, right? It suggests that there were some Egyptians who saw the light and said, man, we're getting out of this place. We're getting out of here. We're gone. We're going with you. I've seen who God is, Tim, and I'm following you. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt. They baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Listen, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because, listen to this. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. You know what that means? You know what it means, Penny? The Lord kept watch. He was on duty, Josh. He was on the clock, punched in, active, keeping vigil. I don't think there was one person that strayed that God wasn't aware of and just saw them back in line. Keeping watch. And some of us need to know that the Lord is clocked in and he doesn't clock out. And he keeps vigil over you and he keeps vigil over me. Because there's times, my sister, when life can be pretty dark, ain't it, David? You know what I'm talking about? Life can get dark. Jose, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, brother? There's times when life can deal you some blows, man, and you feel like you're isolated, and you're out there all by yourself, and you feel completely alone. And the reality that there is a God who keeps vigil and watch over us is the comfort the Scripture gives us. And from time to time, more than I would like to admit, I find myself in that same place there, When everything in the house looks good, when everyone's healthy, when everything's going well, there's still those moments when the demands of life and the pulls of life can be so overwhelming, and you internalize it, Mike. You know, you sometimes shield everyone around you from the fear that's really taking place in your heart, and you put up the good front, and you want to look strong, and everything in you is shaking. And then you pull back and you realize God's watching. He's not abandoning me. He's not forsaking me. And the needs of my own heart, not the needs of a husband, not the needs of a father, not the needs of a son, but the needs of me. And there's times when you and I I've got to kind of disassociate, disconnect from all the roles that we live by. And we have to find ourselves in the place of God as his child. And look up at him and say, God, with all of those ancillary responsibilities fallen from me, this is all that's left. This is me. Watch over me. I find myself there. I bet you find yourself there. And the one thing that I know for sure is that God finds himself there watching over you then as well. Okay, listen. It said, on this night, all the Israelites are are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So there's a response of, of being vigil in response to God's being vigilant over us, right? It's reciprocated. So God gives to us. God, what? Desires for us to give back, right? To live. He's poured himself into our life. And the move of God is desiring for us to pour him into other people's lives. Responding to his vigilance. And so let's close right here this morning. On Father's Day, we got to get the dads out, right? Right? (laughs) And this is what the scripture says. Let's look at that. And we're going to close right at the, very, the first seven words. It says the Israelites journey from Ramesses to Sukkot. <sighs> Ramesses, you know where that is? You know how that came about? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. This is where the journey begins in Ramesses. The journey begins... In a place of slavery and bondage. Built by the Israelites' own hands. Did you know Ramesses was built by the Jews? When they were first being oppressed. You go back to Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. And it says, and there arose a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And because the Jews were multiplying and, and they had opposed a the threat. They enforced harsh labor upon the Jewish people and had them build Ramesses as a storage city for Pharaoh. Literally their place the catalyst place the place where the journey begins the place where God starts everything is a place of bondage and slavery constructed by their very own hands. Verse 11, chapter 1 says, And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Let me say this to you guys in closing. There are often times in our lives that our journey with Jesus begins in a sin cell of our own constructing. There are times when the journey to freedom begins in the center of brokenness that we have built with our own hands. And instead of God saying to us, I'm going to give you what you wanted and I'm going to let you die in there. Because we've all constructed our own rameses. God says, I'm bringing you out of your own sinful inventions. I'm bringing you out of your own sinful, self-destructive Inventions. Jesus so beautifully said, right? In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he makes this beautiful declaration, and this is what he says He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He doesn't say whether or not it was, it was to the prisoners who didn't construct their old prison. He doesn't clarify to how you became a prisoner. He literally says in this moment, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Listen, to set the oppressed free. Even if the oppression has come at the end of your own hands. I'm just going to ask you to stand with me just for a moment this morning. We'll be dismissed. By the way, again, happy Father's Day. This is a reality of the scripture. These are the beautiful hidden things sometimes that we just run right through, don't we? Sometimes we, we run right through it, don't we? And we miss so much. There's so much. There's so many small things that are so significant. And the scriptures that lay hidden from us that God wants us to see. And here's another beautiful truth of that scripture. It's when it says Sukkoth, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to place of, to Sukkoth. No one can identify exactly where Sukkoth was. And I'll say to you this, I don't know where God's taking you. <laughs> but I know where he's not leaving you, right? He's not leaving you in your Ramesses, And he's taking you to your own Sukkoth. Where that, what that looks like, where that is, I don't know. I don't know how God's going to work that out. But we all have a Ramesses. We all have a sukkah. And God's leading us there. and God's leading you there. When the scripture, let me read this and and we're done right. When the scripture says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, I'm a visual thinker. Anybody here a visual thinker? You got to kind of see things. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I kind of see things like that. when it it talks about proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, I can can see this. I can see me in a cell and Jesus making this proclamation. The door's open, Trent. (laughs) Come on out. And there I stand in a jail cell of my own making and the door has slung wide open on the hinges. And he stands on the other side, (laughs) running. And he said, come on out. Come on out. And I'd say to you this morning, that's exactly what I envisioned for you. I don't know how big your cell is, how high it is, how deep it is, how strong it is, but today, Jesus has swung your cell door open as well. And Jesus is proclaiming to you, prisoner, to you, you're free. Come on out. Amen? Father, in Jesus' name, let us pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, we ask you Speak to us. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, there's times, Father, that we've been somewhere for so long, it is so scary to think about even leaving that place, though it's detrimental to us it's destroyed us. It's become so comfortable. To leave is a fearful thought. But Lord, this morning, what I'm asking you to do in the hearts of everyone listening, if that's where we're at, is to give us the boldness and the bravery to respond to the open door and to come out come out to come out Lord even at this very moment as I pray to you there are other people who are praying as well and they're making some decisions there's some people standing behind chairs standing. there's people sitting who are deciding this morning deciding to stay in cells or deciding to leave cells I pray, God, the decision is to leave and to trust you this morning. Trust you this morning. Father, those decisions will be made in these minutes that we stand here are being made in hearts now, but they'll be expressed out there in that world. freedom chosen here and exercised out there. God, may that be the identifying mark of those who have chosen to be free this morning and respond to you, is that that choice is exercised out there. It's exercised in the home. It's exercised in their relationships. It's exercised in their jobs. There will be people going back to work this week that will be different because they're free. Because they've responded to you. And if that's you this morning, I'm asking you just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a minute. Just for a minute. Listen, I'm dead serious with your eyes closed. I don't want anyone looking around. Out of respect for those in front of you, beside you, And behind you. And listen. I'm not going to ask you to come up here. I'm not going to ask you to come up here. But if you've made a decision this morning. To respond. To Jesus. Who has opened that cell door. And proclaimed liberty to you. If you've made a a decision this morning. To say to Jesus. Lord I trust you. You've paid the the sin penalty for me. I receive the gift that you offer to purchase my freedom, your life you've given for mine. If that is you this morning, with just a raised hand, would you lift your hand up this morning? Just lift your hand up. I see you. I see you. I see you. Bless God. Bless God. So, Father, for every person who's raised their hand this morning, I bless them. For my brothers, my sisters who lifted their hand up, who said, "I, I want to be free. I want to walk out. I am walking out. I just pray, Father, that your spirit would so envelop their lives. Your word would become such a, a an addiction to them that they would hunger and thirst, Lord, for your word and for your presence, for prayer, for an intense, intimate relationship with you is what their heart would desire. I pray that for them this morning. I pray, Father, a fresh anointing, a double portion, if you will, Lord, that's what Elisha asked for, wasn't it? What, what you gave Elijah to the second power. Double that thing up. Double it up. Twice as much. And so, Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters this morning who have raised a hand. And for my other brothers and sisters who are in this journey, who are in somewhere in this space, Lord, Uh, of experience. I pray, Father, that if they too need the reality that you're being vigilant over their lives, Lord, would you do that? Would you work that out? Would you flesh that out? Would you encourage them? Would you give them a word of encouragement? Maybe that phone call you've set in the heart of a believer. Maybe that letter that's coming that's in the mail. Maybe that text or that email that someone is pinning even now under the leading of your spirit to encourage your son or your daughter. I pray this week that they would find that encouragement. And Lord, as your word says, he who refreshes himself, would be refreshed. I pray when they find that refreshment that they too would refresh others. So Father, we leave this place under the the guidance of your word and your presence and your hand. I bless my brothers and sisters. I bless the fathers here. And I thank you for them. And their influence over their families and others as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that your presence just lead us. Lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And the sons and daughters of God said amen. 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 God bless you.